If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Ephesians in the third chapter. So we're at Ephesians chapter 3 in our study together. Ephesians chapter 3. Well, <clears throat> there is no PowerPoint. If you know me, that's not a surprise. This is my third sermon uh, here at Antioch. I think two out of three is not too bad. So I think that's not too bad. No PowerPoint this morning. But, brothers and sisters, I have entitled the message, Compelled Ministry. Compelled Ministry. In a few moments, I'll give you just a quick breakdown of, of where we're going together. But we're going to look at verses 1 through 13 together, the, the entire first section of chapter 3. And we'll um, look at this theme of compelled ministry throughout. But by way of introduction, let me look back to uh, someone in the 1800s and early 1900s. A man by the name of John Patton. John Patton was a Scottish pastor who, after serving in the pastorate of a growing church for over 10 years, was drawn to missionary service. Patton it was particularly burdened for a group of specific islands on which there were various tribes of cannibalistic peoples. Yet these people were what we would classify today as unreached and unengaged. So in other words, this was a hard place to get to. It was a dangerous place to seek to do ministry in. And it was a place where people did not have the gospel, where they did not have the gospel or have access to the gospel. Yet Patton was drawn to going and proclaiming the gospel here in this area, in this area of the world. <clears throat> this is how one person recounted his interaction with his church people as he sought to go. He set his heart on one island in particular. Twenty years earlier, two missionaries had gone to that specific island, and they were killed and cannibalized. So it was no surprise that many sought to dissuade Patton from even the thought of following in these missionaries' footsteps. Patton wrote, Amongst many who sought to deter me was one dear old Christian gentleman whose, growing, uh, whose crowning argument was always, The cannibals! You will be eaten by cannibals. John Patton replied to this man, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave and eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it makes no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in that great day, my resurrection body will arise just as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Savior. And to that, the old man left the room exclaiming, After that, I have nothing more to say. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, what compels someone to such reckless abandonment? What drives them to sacrifice and risk so much? The answer has to be there must be something greater than what is risked for which we would go and risk so much, right? And the passage before us shows us that there indeed is something greater. In verse 8 of this chapter that we're about to read, or the first half, Paul wrote, 
This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That is what is worth the risk. That is what will compel those to go and share the gospel. Maybe not crossing oceans, but crossing yards. Maybe not crossing continents, but crossing the community. Maybe just the hallway in our own houses as we share the gospel with others. So with this in mind, let's turn our attention to chapter 3, verse 1, and we'll read the entirety down through chapter through verse 13. This is God's word. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive, when you read this, excuse me, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, and has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the same of partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask this morning that you would use it first to draw our hearts to you. Lord, we pray for those who don't know you in Christ, that they would know you today and know the joy of salvation of which we have been singing about together. Father, we pray for those of us who are in Christ that we would be furthered in our sanctification. And Father, that we too, like the Apostle Paul, who's compelled in ministry, that we would be compelled to go and to share and to grow, share your grace and to grow in grace together as your church. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as we open this up, let me just give you, I'm breaking the chapter, I keep calling this the chapter, this part of the chapter, this section of scripture, just in two points, right? Verses 1 through 6, the mystery revealed, and verses 7 through 13, the gospel ministered. Verses 1 through 6, the mystery revealed, and verses 7 through 13, the gospel ministered. So as we begin here in chapter 1, he says, for this reason... So we understand that he is tying this back to what he's already said, right? This is what Tyler was talking to us about last week as he concluded the second part of chapter 2. And so for this reason connects us to the greater context. 
within Ephesians. In the, in the broad context of chapter 2, as Tyler put it in these words last week, we look at vertical and horizontal reconciliation, right? Verses 1 through 10 shows us how we can be reconciled to God himself as those who were enemies of God and who were walking against him can be transformed, can be saved, and can be made his children. And they can be reconciled, how we can be reconciled to him. And then in the end of chapter 2, we saw that through the, uh, the second half of that chapter that we are in this horizontal reconciliation, right? That not only is God reconciling us to himself, but he's reconciling us to one another. Look at those last few verses of chapter 2. Built on the foundation, I'm in verse 20, of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is being built together, grows into the holy temple of the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That God is making us, right? He's broken down the dividing wall of hostility and there in the end of chapter 2, verse 14. Made peace by the blood of Christ, and he is making a new people built together, being the temple of the Lord, the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. And so now Paul is going to talk more on this. This is connected for this reason. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, right? Connecting us to this context of what he's talking about, of being reconciled to one another and being reconciled to God. And then the greater context of chapter 1, this is all the work of the triune God. And you see this permeated all throughout Ephesians, right? You saw spirit, Father and Son, all mentioned there in the end of chapter 2, and we continue to see that as we move through together. Now, Paul says that he's a prisoner of Christ. Well, quite literally, he is imprisoned as he's writing this. But I think Paul means this in two ways, right? I think he means he's literally imprisoned, but I think he also means he is held captive to Christ and to his mission. That he is, as he says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, that the love of Christ compels him or controls him, depending on your translation. He's compelled, he's controlled by Christ and by, he's held captive to Christ and to this mission and that he can do nothing else other than this. And we'll return to this theme in just a few moments. He says, a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. Now notice what he says in verses 2 and 3. He says, assuming that you've heard, and then he wrote, as I've written briefly, right? Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Now Paul is referring, some translations say, as I've written above, uh, I think we can just understand this. I think the ESV's translation is good here. As I've written previously, as I've written before. So if you would take it to say, as I've written above, then you would mean that he is speaking of something specifically he's already said in Ephesians. I think that Paul is re referencing something that they are aware of that we don't know exactly what he's talking about here that he's written previously either to them or if you would understand that Colossians was written before Ephesians, as some scholars would argue, and we'd understand that that was in the same region as uh, the church of Ephesus, then it's very possible that what he's referring to is that letter being circulated. They have probably read it and are aware of what it said. And Colossians 1, 25 and 27 would make sense. Where Paul writes, I've become its servant 
according to the commission that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, same context, same language. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Paul is referencing something that they would be aware of, that he's written of briefly, and he's speaking of this to them. And then he says, as I have written briefly, and then he says in verse 4, when you read this, now he's going to tell them more. You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. So Paul speaks of, of an aside, right, of something that they would be aware of that he's written previously. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right, so let's look and see what he says next. This mystery. Now you saw it in the, in the Colossians uh, chapter 1, verse 25, 27. Paul uses this language. We've already encountered it in the book of Ephesians as well and talked briefly about it. But here he's going to tell us explicitly and specifically what it is in verse 6. But first, a little bit of context. We understand and we use the word mystery to describe something that is unknowable, Right? <clears throat> Something that's unknowable, strange. I, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know how that can be. I don't understand how the Braves left so many people stranded on base last night <laughs> and lost the first game of the playoffs and will once again break my heart after having such a wonderful season. I don't understand. It's a mystery to me, right? But the Semitic range of, of the meaning of this word, as Paul uses it, doesn't really describe something that's unknowable, but it's describing something that has been hidden that will be revealed at a later time. It's something that has been hidden and will be revealed at a later time. You'll see as you look at this passage, and you can continue to look at it as you leave here later today, he speaks of the eternal purposes of God at work here that ties us right back to the beginning of chapter 1, that before the foundation of the world, the Lord has been working His plan. But, but there has been mystery to it, something that has been hidden that is not to be revealed until the proper time. And what is it? Well, it's verse 6, told explicitly. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, if you weren't here last week, go back and listen to Tyler's sermon in chapter 2, 11 through the end of the chapter, where he explains this so well as Paul has already been unfolding this. And so this is the mystery is that God is bringing the Gentiles. They are becoming a part, heirs of the promise, and they are becoming partakers of this promise without taking on any of the identity markers uh, of, of the Jewish people, right? And that they are welcomed in to the family in Christ Jesus, verse 6, the very end, through the gospel. Through the gospel. It is by faith in Christ, through the gospel, the good news of his work, that they are now included into the promise, and they are heirs of this promise and can be children of God. Now, Paul turns from here and begins to talk about his ministry. Look at verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister 
according to the gift of God's grace. Now, notice the language. Grace and gift are pretty much synonymous. So notice what Paul's doing. Notice this emphasis that he's putting on. Of this gospel, I was made a minister. This is not his own doing. The Lord has called him. Go and read Galatians, the very uh, first chapter, and you can see as he talks about this call that he has as an apostle. And so here he's using the similar language that I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which he has given me. I mean, this is three times emphasized, right? That this is according to the gift of God's gift, which he has given me. We can say it that way almost. And so Paul is, is emphasizing by the working of his power. Whose gospel is this? It's God's gospel. Who does salvation belong to? It belongs to the Lord. Whose mystery is this that is being revealed at this time? It's the Lord's mystery. Who has been working his purposes throughout all eternity to bring it to this point in Christ Jesus? And who will continue so until all things are submitted under Christ Jesus' feet? It is God's work and his great work alone. And Paul is saying, I I have the privilege of being a minister according to the gift that God has given to me all by his grace and his grace alone. Notice how he continues to emphasize this in verse 8. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, Paul uses this language often describing himself. As one who once was not a proclaimer of the gospel, but a persecutor of the gospel. As one who once sought to stomp out the gospel and extinguish it. As one who is now being used by God to proclaim this great gospel. This grace was given, once again emphasized, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Brothers and sisters, are you amazed by God's grace? We should never grow cold of His grace. We should never forget that it is only by His grace which is given to us that we are sitting in this room right now. It's only by His grace that we even care what His Word says. It's only by His grace that we can stand and sing with confidence. Our hope springs eternal. What marvelous words. What marvelous words. Springs eternal. Things run out, right? Not our hope. Indestructible. Eternal hope. It's only by His grace that that, that we even care. It's only by His grace that we're even here. And it's only by His grace that we would even have the opportunity to proclaim this good news to others. This is what Paul is talking about, uh, this grace that is given. Notice what he says, to preach the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. was phenomenal language. Unsearchable riches. One commentator wrote it this way. The adjective qualifying riches, which means unfathomable, impossible to comprehend, 
in the gospel of Christ that came by the revelation, there were vast treasure houses of riches which had not been explored and depths which had not been plumbed either by the apostle himself or any other Christian. His riches were infinite. Unfathomable, incomprehensible riches in Christ. Riches that we could never plumb the depths of in Christ Jesus. Riches that he says in Ephesians 2, 7, we will continue throughout all eternity to recognize the glories of the riches in Christ like waves coming in from the seashore that just are unceasing and never-ending wave after wave of his grace, of his mercy, of saying, amazing grace, how sweet it truly is. That it will never come to an end. This is an amazing thing. Think about this. Think about all the goods that we enjoy in this life and how we never want them to end, but how they always come to an end. Right? Tuesday morning at 8 a.m., my fall break is over. It's over, right? All the good things in life, and, and we cling to those things, and we hold those things, but it's like sand through our fingers, and if that's all we hold through, when we open up our hands at the end, they're empty. Yet in Christ are unsearchable riches which will never come to an end. And Paul says, I have been given this grace that he said almost five times. Grace given, grace by his grace given to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Let's put this together. Verse 1, he says he's a prisoner. Held captive by Christ. In prison for preaching Christ. Preaching the unsearchable riches Verse 13, skip down to it. He says, do not lose heart over what I am suffering for you. This is compelled ministry. This is ministry that is controlled or compelled by the love of Christ. This is ministry that has said, hey, the gospel truly is the greatest news in all the world and everyone needs to hear it and there is nothing better that I could give of myself to. The Apostle Paul says, imprisoned, but it's worth it because I'm preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. Ephesians, you're discouraged. Don't lose heart for what I'm suffering because it's for your glory. Adonai and Judson, before he left for his missionary endeavors, sought the hand of Anne Hastings in marriage. And one thing that has always blown me away is the letter that he wrote to ask for her hand in marriage to her father. This is what he said. I have now to ask whether you can consent Excuse me, this is the letter he wrote to her. I have now to ask whether you consent to part... Nope, sorry. This is the letter he wrote to her father. I'll get this right one day. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. 
Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to that fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and who died for her and for you, for the glory of God? Can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in a world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her Savior from the heathen save, through her means, from eternal woe and despair. We don't write like that anymore, do we? On April 12th, Judson himself, dying some years after Anne did on the mission field, on a boat, he wrote, How few there are who, who dies so hard. Those were his final words. Brothers and sisters, what drives someone to that kind of ministry? What about you and me? Are we captive to Christ and his immeasurable riches? To bring to light for everyone, as verse 9 says. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? Are we captive to those riches? Are we driven to bring to light? Will we all be Pattons and Judsons? No. I hope some of us will be. However, if we are captive to the immeasurable riches of Christ, this will orient our lives completely. It will orient our whole lives and how we interact with our neighbors. It will orient our whole lives and how we do our parenting. It will orient our whole lives and how we do our relationships. It will orient our whole lives and how we will recognize goers and we will sacrifice to be senders. It will orient everything that we do. And i got to be honest with you, as I'm studying this passage this week, conviction. Conviction. In my prayer, just wrote it in my notes, Oh Lord, that we would be captive to Christ. That you and I would be captive to Christ. There is no sacrifice that we will make that when we stand before the Lord, as Judson wrote, in the world to come of glory with crowns of righteousness, brightened with acclamations of praise that redound to our Savior from those who have been saved. We'll never regret any sacrifice made for that. Brothers and sisters, the reality is is that often we are captive to the riches of the world and to the things that the world offers us and the comforts here. And we want to make this our eternal home because so much of this has made its way into our hearts. Yet God has laid before us 
immeasurable riches in Christ that can never be exhausted. Riches that are, as the Apostle Peter says, are imperishable and unfading. Those are the things worthy of our life. Those are the things that are worthy of of orienting everything that we do in the context that God has called us to be in with the possessions and the means that he has given us. Competencies, abilities, giftedness that he'll talk that we'll talk about in chapter four. Paul has been gifted. You and I have been gifted as well. That we would steward and use all of these things for the Lord's glory. Verse 10. So that. Why? Why all of this? Verse 10. So that. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This reminds us of of language from chapter 2, right? What is all of this about? Ultimately, it's all for God's glory. If he's the one that's doing all of this, if it's his gospel, and it's his work, and it's his ministers, and it's to his ends, and it's by his means then all the glory is for him. But here in verse 10, Paul is telling us that it is so that where will his glory be made known? Where will we see his glory? It is so that through the church. Brothers and sisters, look around you in this room and you and I in this room together are God's boast to this world. That God is saying to the world, look at what I can do. Look at what I can do. Look at what I can do in Christ Jesus. That he has repaired and brought reconciliation that you and I could never do in and of ourselves. Of reconciling us to him and to one another. I mean, let's just be honest this morning. For some of us in this room, the only reason why we even know each other It's because of Christ. That's it. I'm under no illusion that everybody in here thinks my humor is as funny as I think it is. I think it's excellent. I know know you tolerate it, right? I know that we don't come from the same backgrounds. I know that we don't have the same uh, preferences and tastes, right? We don't laugh at the same things. We don't desire the same things. We aren't driven by the same things. We don't have the same of much. But we have one thing, and that is Christ. And the world is constantly trying to bring together people who have things that are not in common. And and to repair breaches. But fails over and over. And even when they boast success, it is so fragile and so hollow. Yet in Christ, God has broken down dividing walls of hostility. And has brought together and is making a people for himself. 
of accomplishing something that nothing in the world could ever accomplish. And one day when we see the fullness of it around his throne, we will be absolutely amazed. But today, we get glimpses of it every day as we walk side by side in the faith together. This great wisdom, you and I should glory in God's great wisdom, which means that we should love the church. In the early 2000s, as I was finishing college and beginning ministry, a slogan became prominent. I love Jesus, but not the church. Brothers and sisters, I understand why some people have church hurt. And I'm under no illusion that churches never make mistakes or hurt people. They, they do. But you and I should love what God loves. And I can guarantee you, as much as I love my bride, he loves his even more. And he loves his church. And you and I should love the church, Christ's bride, God's manifold wisdom. Is the church perfect? Not yet. <laughs> but we one day will be. And all of this glory that is extolled in the end of chapter 2 and here in chapter 3, you and I have got to be willing to fight to live out this unity that we have in Christ. In fact, that's exactly where the Apostle Paul will go in chapter 4, verse 3. Right? Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We have got to be willing to work for it, to fight for it, and to seek by God's grace to live it out. Therefore, we should not just love the church, but we should labor for her to be what she will be one day when Christ returns and to be what we are in Christ right now, to fight to maintain unity. We are to actively seek to be a part of the church, building one another up to love and maturity in Christ. That's the second part of chapter 4. According to his word, that we would build one another up in love toward maturity in Christ and that we should pursue holiness together. Brothers and sisters, we should delight in what God delights in. We should glory in what God glories in. We should love what he loves, which is his church. No one said it better than Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon said in a sermon on October 24th in 1869. Now I know there are some of you who say, Well, I hope I have given myself to the Lord. But I do not intend to give myself to any church because, now why not? Because I can be a Christian without it. Now, are you quite clear about that? You can be as good a Christian by disobedience to our Lord's commands as by being obedient? Well, suppose everyone else did the same. Suppose all Christians in the world said, I shall not join a church. Why, there would be no visible church. There would be no ordinances that would be a very bad thing, and yet one doing it. What is right for the one is right for all. Why should not all of us do it? Then you believe that if you were to do an act 
which has a tendency to destroy the visible church of God, you would be as good a Christian as if you did your best to build up that church? I do not believe that, sir. Nor do you either. You have no, you have not any such a belief. It is only a trumpery of excuse for something else. There is a brick, a very good one. What is a brick made for? To help build a house with it. It is of no use for that brick to tell you that it is just as good a brick while it's being kicked around on the ground as it would be in that house. It is a no good for nothing brick. Until it is built into the wall, it is no good. So you Rolling Stone Christians, I do not believe that you are answering your purpose. You are living contrary to the life which Christ would have you live. And you are much to blame for the injury you do. Brothers and sisters, do you glory in God's great wisdom? And do you love the church? Let us, by God's grace, avoid being rolling stone Christians. Like a brick being kicked about on the ground that is intended to be one of the living stones built up. See, you can be that formally and say, I won't formally join a church. But friends, let us be under no illusion because we could do the same functionally by joining a church but by not being active to build one another up in love. Are you seeking to maintain unity or are you more given to indulging gossip? Are you seeking to build others up to maturity in Christ? Friends, think about that. Sometimes maybe we're on the other side of it and we're really ambitious about building one another up in Christ. Make sure that you are saying... Follow me as I follow Christ. And that you are seeking to make disciples of Christ and not clones of you. For this is what the Lord has called us to do. Are you pursuing personal holiness? And seeking more and more to live in line with God's grace in your life. These are ways that we love the church. That we pursue the unity of the church. And that we seek to build one another up into maturity in Christ. Notice how Paul rounds this off. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. All of this according to God's eternal purpose. Verse 12. In whom, Christ our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. The glories of the gospel right there that you and I can have boldness and access through our confidence. What? Access with confidence through us? No. Through faith in him and what he's done. Friend, if you're here today and we've been talking about the glories of God, and we've talked about why people would, would risk and give up everything to tell others about Christ, because we really do believe that the gospel is the greatest news of all. We believe that it is an amazing thing that you and I, who are made by a holy God and have rebelled against Him and sought to be our own gods and deserve His judgment and His righteous judgment against us, 
can have salvation through Christ Jesus who came and who lived a life that we could not live and died a death that we deserve, taking our punishment on the cross and was raised on the third day for our justification and, and has sent out the church to proclaim this good news. Why? Because those who were alienated, who were separated, who were enemies of God can have boldness and access to him through how? Faith in Christ. The reality is this morning, we're all trusting in something. Everybody's putting their confidence in something, something to justify them. It may be something that changes day to day for you. It could be your job one day, your bank account the next day. It could be relationship status. It could be things that you own, that you're trusting, you're seeking to justify your existence and establish yourself. Yet the Bible is really clear that the only thing that will sustain us is Christ Jesus that he justifies us before a holy God so that we can stand before him and he sees us not as sinners, but as those who are his children, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And it is something that, as we talked about earlier, is unshakable hope that springs eternal. And we can know God through him. So this morning, if you're here and, and you've never really come to realize that, that's your greatest need. Brother and sisters, be reminded of verse 12 that you have that. Boldness and access, confidence through our faith in him. That you and I can call out to him as father. And just as an earthly father hears the cries of their children and answers them, so our heavenly father hears ours. Verse 13 that we looked at a few moments ago. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Two things. Are we compelled? Are we compelled to share with others? Do we glory in what God glories in? Do we love his church? He loves the church. And are we seeking to build it up? If you get in your base groups later today and you're discussing the sermon and you don't know what to say and it just dries up, why don't you do this? Look at this passage and look at what God has done through Paul and how Paul is really just giving them a, a look behind the curtain and say, hey, this, is, this has been my ministry to you. And this is how the Lord has brought it about. Don't quite share a whole testimony, but, but maybe think today. Who's one person that the Lord used in your life to bring you to faith? And just share that with someone. Share it in your base groups. It'll be such an encouragement to you to think through of how the Lord sought you when you were a stranger, wandering from the fold of God of how the Lord ordained in your life to call you to himself. It could be your parents. It could be Sunday school teachers. It could have been a classmate. It could be a missionary. It could be someone you met at a community barbecue. Share with others one person the Lord used in your life. And then you stop and you reflect in your heart and you think about how God did the same thing in their life to call them to himself 
And that the people he used in their life, he used people in their life. And he used people in their life. And it just keeps going on. And we stand back and say, man, the Lord is truly amazing. And his grace to us and his riches to us are unsearchable. He gets all the credit and all the glory. Thanks be to God for his church and for those who have been a pillar and buttress of truth and who are proclaiming the gospel so that you and I would be beneficiaries of that. May we go and do the same. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would use it in our lives. Confirm, encourage our faith. Press us on to holiness. Father, make us care and love the things that you care and love for. Let us glory in what you glory in, your church, your bride. And may we, as we see in the weeks ahead in the book of Ephesians here, labor with all your energy that works in us by your grace to build one another up in love. Father, may we be compelled by this gospel to share it with others. As we look around and we see people looking for things, seeking things to put their hope in, may we point them to the only thing that is worthy of their hope and that can sustain them, which is Christ. Compel us and let it orient everything that we do. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.